In a Psychology Today article entitled, The Problem of Desire, the author writes concerning Christianity. The Bible opens with a cautionary tale. Had Adam and Eve resisted the temptation to eat from the forbidden tree, they and we would not have been banished from Eden. Four of the seven deadly sins, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, are centered around desire. Christian rituals, such as prayer, fasting, and confession, all aim at least, in part, at curbing or regulating desire, as do monastic ideals such as poverty, chastity, communal living. But of all the controls on earthly desire, the most ingenious by far is the promise of life after death. So this raises the question, as it's implied in the article, is God a giant killjoy, right? Is he after the death of our desires? Is Christianity one stoic religion? Is God cold-hearted? Is psychology today correct, right? The modern American revolts against the idea of stifling desires, so they run after every form of self-expression and self-desire. We are a therapeutic nation, Right? We idolize self-expression. We have a therapeutic identity. What makes us feel good, whether it is right or not, is the only good. The world is in search of satisfaction. Right? And so it turns to all these things, but yet they never find it. Right? Weirdly enough, denying God's Creation of man and woman, looking for satisfaction in work, popularity, sex, relying on likes from Instagram and Facebook, shares on TikTok, never truly satisfy. And we can fall for these lies as well, can't we? Right? But on the flip side as Christians, we can also view desires with kind of an unhealthy suspicion. Right? We bottle them up, we suppress them, view piety as maybe a stoic hardness of life. So when trials come, we believe we must kind of die on the inside, act like we have it all together, meanwhile we're wasting away, right? And then temptations arise, sexual temptations or other temptations arise, other wrong desires, but we have no motivation to fight them. So we say, you know what, this won't really hurt us, why don't I just give in? Friends, in God's kindness... We are called to die to immorality, selfishness, every evil thing. But to be a Christian does not mean we deny satisfaction. Rather, we saturate ourselves in it. Not by looking to the things of the world that never satisfy. But as, in Psalm, as we'll see in Psalm 63, by looking to God himself. True and lasting satisfaction is only found in God Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan, wrote this, a soul that is capable of God can be filled with nothing else but God. Nothing but God can fill a soul that is capable of God. So let's look at Psalm 63. It goes, Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. 
My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. He begins with, O God, you are my God. When we read our Bibles, we'll easily look over this phrase, right? But it's important. David gets who he's talking to. Not a person, not a ceiling, but God himself. Oh, God. David is honoring him as true king of all. He's not a God. He is God. While David is in the wilderness running from his enemies, God is still God sitting on his throne. He's still the one who breathed and all creation came into existence. Everything that is in them, from the stars, the vast oceans, to the microscopic bug, he created it with his breath. He is the one who sovereignly rules over all creation. He tells the sun to rise. He tells it to set. Right? He causes the electricity in our hearts to continue so that we might have life. And he is the sovereign one over all that is happening in his creation, even us in the wilderness. He is sovereign over all the affairs of mankind. He understands. He gets it. He knows who he's talking to. And he knows that God is sovereign over his suffering. And second, we see, oh God, you are my God, right? It's a proclamation of submission. God is king You are my king. You are my God. In 1 and 2 Samuel, we see that God makes a covenant with David as the head of Israel and by extension the nation of Israel. And this comes on the heels of all the other covenants where God has begun his relationship with the people of Israel. David knows he's a sinner. Just read Psalm 51. But he knows more importantly that the steadfast love of the Lord has brought him into relationship with the living God. So he declares, you are my God. Friends, can you declare with David, oh God, you are my God. Right? God is God whether or not we say he's God or not. But can you say he is your God? Not your parents' God, not your church's God, or your friend's God, but your God. Have you submitted to him through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, trusting that Jesus is the only way to God? Or maybe, truly, God is your God, but functionally, The wilderness has become so large in your own mind that submission to God is an afterthought. That nagging injury, chronic illness, continued struggling with your spouse, 
constant painful disappointments in life time and time again. And they all cloud your view of God. The hill called Calvary becomes a distant hill that has no application for your life. So friends, we must realize that confident delight in God that we see in this psalm, right, belongs to those who are submitted to God, even in the wilderness. So we must not expect to have a confident delight in God if you are rebelling against God in the wilderness. We must be submitted to God as our God and King. But David in God's grace, has submitted to God. And he longs for God. So point number two, a pursuit and passion for God. Read the second half of verse one. Earnestly, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In light of God being his God, David pursues him. And there is an urgency about the statement, right? Earnestly. Some will say early, right? I seek you early. I seek you earnestly. Either way, there is a primacy and an urgency about his pursuit. Want to know if you have confident delight in God? Do you seek him? Do you earnestly seek him? Do you early seek him? Right? Not that a quiet time or time in the word always has to be in the morning, but is there a sense of he is my pursuit and therefore I will earnestly seek him? He is my desire, therefore I look forward to delighting in him. Because that's what quiet times are all about. That's what time in the word and in prayer is all about. Right? We're delighting in God. And David's urgency his desire, his passion for God is supported by the fact that all he is desires God, right? Both his flesh and his soul, encompassing all of who he is, desires God. For a man in the wilderness needing water, this analogy would have been deeply real. This would have been very personal. He's experiencing thirst. He's experiencing hunger. He's in the wilderness, And maybe you deeply identify with David also. Day to day seems like a drudge. You can think back to the times when there were greener pastures, when life was alive and God felt real. But now you only see a desert. Time in the word and prayer seem pointless, and YouTube seems more exciting, if you're going to be honest. So your soul thirsts for God. Your flesh yearns for God. And friends, when we, can't, when we see my soul thirst for you, we can't help but think of Jesus, right? In John 7, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And commentators note, now this he said about the spirit, whom those who delighted in him were to receive, 
For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. You see, the only reason you and I can delight in God, have access to God, is because of Jesus. The second person of the Trinity lived a perfect life, perfectly delighting in God, and then died a death we deserved. Rising from the grave, ascending to the throne, pouring out his spirit so that you and I might dwell with God. Right? Our delight in God is costly. This is good news, friends. This psalm is ultimately about Jesus. His, de- his death is the avenue by which we delight in God and have God as the source of our delight. So what does David do with his access to God? He pursues God, right? And this pursuit has both public and private aspects, as we'll see. Verse 2 says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David longed to be gathered with the other Jews in the temple, to meet God there. He recounts the time when he would behold God with other people. You see, Old Testament worship was profoundly corporate worship. God designed the temple where he was to be met with as a corporate place, right? Where he dwelt with his people. And in the New Testament, we find that God has created a community of worshipers called the church. So friends, you and I need the church. You and I need the church. Every cultural stream rushes against this. It's hip to be individualistic. And the strong and the cool people are skeptical of church and authorities or anything that would attach us to a local church. Right? We've accepted that membership being vitally connected and committed to a local body is overrated. Who needs it? It's even encouraged that you stay at home, you know, in the comfort of your own home, get your own coffee, watch it, watch it online, kind of have your personal tank filled up. Right? It's nothing about using your gifts to serve each other or hospitality with each other. In other words, friends, we're really good at making church about us, not about God. If Jesus died for his church, who are we to say that we don't need the church? If he died to attach us to the body, the church, who are we to say that we don't need to be attached to it? We need the church, friends. And what's the ultimate goal of the church? What's the primary purpose? Well, the text informs us. And that is, we are to meet with and be satisfied in God. Look at the bottom half of verse 2, right? Beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than my life, my lips will praise you. So I bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. In discussing the connection between worship and delight, John Piper, a theologian, argues that worship is the height of delight. It's the fulfillment of delight. And I agree. 
Think of a, a lover writing a cringy song for his girlfriend, right? I had a friend, cringe even thinking about this memory. Had a friend, I guess I have cringy memories as well of my own failures. But anywho, so I had a friend in college who, there's this place um, called the J-Bowl. It's a green pasture in the middle of campus where you could just see all the relationship stuff go down. And he's out there on a bench, which is in front of everyone to see. He had written a song for his new girlfriend, who ended up breaking up with him. And he wrote it to her and played guitar and sang it to her in front of everyone on the bench. And it was extremely cringy, right? But why does he do that? Other than we're idiots as guys sometimes. But why does he do that? It's because the expression of a song towards his girlfriend is the expression of his delight in his girlfriend. It bubbles over. He can't help. It's not like someone had to tell him, go write a song for your girlfriend. No, he can't help but sing to his girlfriend. In the same way, delight in God bubbles into worship. It's the fulfillment of worship. It's the height of worship. The height of delight. David delighted to meet with God accompanied by others. But friends, our hearts can be stubborn, and we know this well. So how do we get to joyful worship together? Meditate on and experience what David did. Your steadfast love is better than life. Your steadfast love is better than life. Friends, the wilderness is real. The trials are real. The uncertainty about life and our jobs are real. Our flimsy affections are real. That nagging depression is real. That encompassing anxiety is real. But do you want to know what's better than life itself? What is sure and steady in the middle of that? The steadfast love of steadfast love of God. And friends, we must attach it. What helps us see that love in the context? It's the church. How many times have you had the experience where Sunday morning, your heart is cold. You wake up, the realities of the gospel just seem distant. You have screaming kids. Everything is going wrong. You show up late to church, which is really half our church does that every week, but show up late to church. You walk in the door, you're distracted, you're trying to meet the few people you're going to meet, you're trying to get to your spot, and man, but what happens when you start worshiping? What happens when you hear the other people singing, and not just singing, but latching on to delighting in God in worship? What happens? Your soul is stirred to worship. Your soul is stirred to delight in God, and especially when we know that they are suffering themselves. Right? Nothing speaks more of the worth of Christ than Christians that are suffering, yet confidently delighting in God. And this stirs our hearts. We want to join in. We want to worship. And second, while David was alone, he sought the Lord. So he did it in community, but he also did it alone. This is verses 5 through 7. My soul will be satisfied 
as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Why? For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. So while everyone is sleeping in the middle of the night, in the wilderness, probably in a cave, with people trying to kill him, David is meditating on God and his faithfulness and finding satisfaction for his soul. Think about that for a moment. He has every circumstantial reason to be worried and anxious. I think we'd give him a pass, right? People are hunting him down to kill him. He's in the wilderness. We'd probably call it a disorder over concern of death, right? I recently saw some experts, this is not a joke, who, are called, or who called being anxious about the last uh, political season, elections that just happened, election stress disorder. And I'm sure they would be happy to medicate it because it's depressing. <laughs> just kidding. But David has a much more immediate reason for fear. But he offers an infinitely better solution. God satisfies. Friends, when we are anxious and fearful, and the broken record of stresses or what-ifs surround us in the wilderness at night, we're actually choosing to delight in our own mind, in our own scheming, our own abilities over delighting in God. Friends, I get it. The what-ifs are, are scary. The nightmares are real. There was a season in my life where I would spend my nights crying just thinking about my parents dying. And recently, the Lord convicted me of just my being distracted, right? There's so many things to think about, things to watch, Instagram to look at, Facebook. But some of the sweetest times of my life have been on my bed, meditating on God's faithfulness, looking out the window at the stars, and just being overwhelmed with God's presence. So why do I give that up for anxiety and fear? Why do you give it up? Right? Jesus said that he came so that we might have joy and have it abundantly, and that no one can steal it from us. So the question then becomes, why do we hand it over? C.S. Lewis writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. For we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Here lies the problem, right? Psychology today is dead wrong about God, but often our desires are too, right? They betray us. They betray the worth of Christ because they run after, what, mud pies in the slum. So friends, what mud pies are you choosing today? What lies are you believing? 
What do you think will satisfy you when you're up at night, mulling over the day, mulling over the future, mulling over your current circumstances and your current trials, the wilderness you're in? What do you think will satisfy you? What are you thinking about? Third, we'll spend a moment on this. We have a delight in God's justice and protection. Last verses. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. See, David, emboldened by rightly seeing God, knowing God's love for him, confident in God's care, knows that God is after his good. And as the covenant head of the people of God, right, he knows that God will bring about justice, that God is supporting him. And friends, our covenant head, Jesus Christ, Lord, we can be confident because, uh, <laughs> we can be confident about protection and justice because of Jesus Christ. He took the justice of God against us through his substitutionary death on the cross. And it says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Catch this. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And we know, friends, that this conquering king will come back one day with the sword of justice, righting every wrong. There will be justice. We can be sure of it. So friends, we have, we have every, looking back at the cross on this side of Christ, we have every reason to be confident in God's protection and justice. We have every reason to sleep soundly at night. While we cling to God, he truly upholds us. He keeps us in his hand. Let me end with this story. There's a man named Jonathan Edwards. Many of you know the name or have studied his theology. He's arguably the greatest theologian America has ever produced. And God mightily used him in the first great awakening. But in spite of this, he was fired by his church for wanting to guard communion, which is to say he was saying it's not for non-believers, it's for believers. So he was trying to protect communion, and he got fired by his church for this. And side note, this makes the pastor feel good. It's like if Jonathan Edwards can get fired and I get fired, then we're all good. But an article recounts everything surrounding this goes on. Jonathan Edwards the famous theologian and philosopher, was fired by his congregation July 1750. Before being fired, a ten-church council investigated him. Some on the council tried to slow the process 
and provide time for reconciliation. But the majority push for immediate dismissal. When his congregation was asked to express its opinion, only 23 of the 230 male members express support for Edwards. The opposition was overwhelming. Edwards lost his job and his reputation. Right? The what-ifs happened to Edwards. He lost his job and his reputation. The nightmare was true. And yet Edwards remained calm. Even his farewell sermon was pointed yet gracious. A witness at the time recorded this in his diary. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. But he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future but a present good. Overbalancing all the imaginable ills of life even to the astonishment of many who could not be at rest without his dismission, whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. Put that on your bathroom mirror. So friends, is your happiness in God out of the reach of your enemies?